Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 40. Wanted to, uh, before we get started, wanted to say thank you to Josh Long for being in the last episode in which we talked about Shutter Island. That was a lot of fun. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it as well. So, <clears throat> this episode is going to be a little different. Uh, I'm not really sure exactly when I decided I wanted to do this specific thing. Uh, I think I had gotten some emails from uh, some listeners that uh, sort of prompted this decision. They certainly weren't asking for this, but uh, uh, I kind of arrived at it independently. But uh, So, for those that are not Christian, I'll explain uh, what, I'm, <laughs> what I'm about to do. One of the, one of the aspects of Christianity is and that the idea of fellowship and brotherhood and sisterhood and that sort of thing and just being uh you know in episode 2 I I talked about the idea of accountability uh and part of that uh involves vulnerability it means you know letting people know what you're about who you are what you've been through that sort of thing and sharing the story of not the story of your life, not just mere biography, but specifically your life in reference to God and what God has done in your life. So, uh, and that is uh, often referred to as testimony, like someone says, oh, I'll be giving my testimony tonight, which basically means telling, uh, it, it often winds up being biographical and today is not going to be any exception. But I had decided that um, while I do weave a lot of myself into episodes and into episodes of Battleship Pretension, I have never actually officially put everything out there as far as my testimony and my personal journey. Um, As I have mentioned, there are issues that I have dealt with and continue to deal with, and I've... And those issues pop up a lot in the movies that I choose, uh, usually because uh, those movies have a specific um, relevance to me, and they strike a chord in me, uh, so you'll often find uh, uh, issues of, like, guilt popping up in the movies I discuss. Uh, I remember I talked about Adam Resurrected, and why would anybody talk about Adam Resurrected? It's a great movie, but uh, it is not on anybody's mind. Uh, probably not even the filmmaker or the the actors or really anybody involved uh, with it. So why would I bring it up uh, except that it has a great deal of resonance for me? And same with Shutter Island. Uh, That was another one that dealt with uh, personal guilt and the way that it manifests itself. And so, for example, that's... And and, in in discussing the film Up... uh, and talking about my worry about my wife's safety and leaving things in God's hands and, and stuff like that and trusting God. Um, those are, of course, issues that I that I deal with. And, uh, yeah, so a lot of this is going to be repeated, except these are just kind of little bits and pieces taken from other episodes just condensed into one. And I know that some of the Bible verses that I will be Uh, quoting I have quoted in other episodes as well and I will be quoting quite a few of them 
But first things first, I'm going to try and keep this to under an hour. I'm really actually going to try and keep this to about 45 minutes. Uh, we'll see if that happens. I'm not sure. So, uh, and as I said, this will be bi- there will be biographical elements to this. Uh, so, I'm going to start off by saying, like, I was born in Taft, California, in February 25th, 1982. Uh, in fact, I did. I just said that. Uh, I probably shouldn't have gone into the whole thing, but so when I say that, I'm sure some people are sort of going to roll their eyes and say, "Really, are we? You're going all the way back to your birth." and we're going to cover everything in your whole life. Uh, That is not the plan. Uh, I will probably skim over large sections of my life. But I I will try to... I'm going to try and leave in the things that had an impact on on my faith and that sort of thing. So, uh, So, all right. Let's get started. And the idea behind this, by the way, is that uh, for myself, I am often encouraged by hearing other people's stories, uh, at the very least, because chances are the things that I go through, other people have gone through. And knowing that other people have gone through them and have come out of them, or maybe they haven't come out of them, they're still dealing with certain issues, um, and are working their way through them as, as I am. And so, uh, you know when you're when you're dealing with you know something you know whether it be guilt or you know anger or depression or or really whatever um you can feel very alone and i know that i, I myself often feel like that when i'm in the uh, the depths of despair as my wife would say quoting uh anne of green gables uh and I know that I, I feel I feel very alone, very lonely, and just to know that someone else is going through it is actually a great encouragement to me. Not because I enjoy, it's like, well, at least someone else is miserable. It's nothing like that, but it, it lets you know that you're not, you're not the only one, and that perhaps this person can help you get through it, and you can help them get through it, and that sort of thing, so you don't feel quite so isolated. And so, in the spirit of that... Um, and this is where the emails come in. I have gotten a few emails from people saying, hey, when you talked about, you know, whatever, that really spoke to me. And so I figured I'd throw this out there on the off chance that people might get something out of it. Um, some but some people might think this is self-indulgent, and uh, I guess it is a little bit. Except I, I'm, I've been putting this off, and I'm very, and I'm very nervous about it. So... Uh, and and some people may not be interested in hearing this. Of course, this this one there's not going to be a lot of talk of movies. This is about me and about my faith. And I know that I do have some non-Christian listeners, and maybe they are not interested in hearing this. In which case, you can skip it. It's fine. I'm, my feelings won't be hurt. They will a little bit, but not much. So, and uh, I'll go ahead and throw this out there. Uh, if you don't like this, uh, f- don't don't write it in iTunes, okay? I don't I don't have the energy to deal with that. So, okay, here we go. So as I mentioned, I was first uh, first born. I guess oh, I wasn't planning on making a born again reference. Anyway, so I was born February twenty fifth, nineteen eighty two. My family lived in Taft, California at the time, which is a small town right outside of Bakersfield. Uh, if you know anything about Bakersfield, you know that it is often. Uh, 
it's sort of the butt of jokes of of California. Um, it is nobody wants to be from there. Um, I actually just listened to Social Distortion's new album, and there's a song in there called Bakersfield, and it's about a guy who's despondent because he's stranded in Bakersfield. So very negative, and that is of course the city that Taft, California, uh, looked up to, sort of our big brother that we still had something of a rivalry with. So uh, I. So my family lived in Taft, and uh, my family consisted of my mom, dad, and brother. My mom's name is Deborah. My father's name uh, was Kevin. Yes, my father's name was Kevin Smith, much like the film, uh, much like the filmmaker whose work I do not enjoy. And my brother's name is Matt. And so, uh, so there are only four of us, and we lived in Taft for about six. Uh, well. I lived in Taft for about six years, uh, and I will. I, I remember having something of a happy childhood. Uh, I was really involved in artistic things. I liked drawing. I liked making up little stories. I liked playing with my action figures. Um, it was a lot of fun. However, I probably my not necessarily my first memory, but as far as a story arc, of course, everybody remembers like flashes of things from when you're two and three, and I remember, you know, my parents' silver station wagon that had a dent in it. Uh, I remember stuff like that, but as far as an actual story with a beginning, middle, and end, probably my first memory is uh, hearing that uh, my mom's uncle, uh, I'm sorry, my mom's brother, my uncle, uh, whose name was Daryl, but his nickname was Weedy, um, because uh, he got the nickname because I think in the course of one year when he was younger he grew like a foot and someone commented that he grew like a weed and so uh, he got the nickname Weedy and that's the only way I knew him so uh, and he was my favorite uncle he was very uh, I I really liked him he was a lot of fun Uh, if my other uncles uh, Jeff or Ron happen to be listening to this I apologize but uh, but yes I really liked Weedy and I got word on October 6th uh, 1988, as it happens, my mom's birthday, which makes this especially horrible. Uh, got word that uh, Weedy had killed himself. Um, uh, he apparently had a pretty bad drug problem that uh, we didn't know about. So uh, now I do not remember this aspect. My parents told me later, but I remember thinking this, but I don't remember saying it. I had said something to the effect of, "I should have." I should have noticed. I should have known that this was going to happen. I should have paid closer attention. Uh, please note I was six at this time. And so it is not unusual for people when uh, a suicide happens. It is not unusual for people to think that, to think that they should have seen it coming. They should have paid closer to, uh, attention and looked for warning signs. Uh, that is not unusual. It is unusual for a six-year-old to say it. So, uh, it was off to counseling for me (laughs) and, uh, and so like immediately, like, I don't know if, I don't know if this happened, if I developed a guilt complex because of this event or maybe it was just kind of ready to happen at any moment and this just brought it out. Who knows? Anyway, so I started going to counseling and, uh, at age six because I was uh, showing very adult, uh, things and my attitude and my emotions and uh, then we but then we moved uh, very abruptly to Ventura California which is right outside Santa uh, Santa Barbara 
um, but a big enough city in and of itself for, so that people know about it. Uh, and my, we were transferred there. My dad worked for Texaco Oil, and so we we did not want to move there. Certainly, like we moved there in January of '89, so it was really right after this uh, very tragic event uh, in my family. And uh, I'll show you just how vulnerable I'm going to be. I had started learning how to ride. I had started to learn uh, how to ride a bike. Uh, when I lived in Taft, and when we moved to Ventura, I was so angry that we had, that we had moved, and I left my friends behind. And I was probably also angry from this early uh, this early uh, instance of grief in my life. And I, much like a kid who smashes his own toys when he's angry, I, I refused to learn to ride a bike. I think, um, I think uh, my parents kept uh, trying to encourage me to, to learn, but I was very obstinate and stubbornly refused, uh, almost as a way of saying, kind of screw you to uh, whoever, I guess, to my parents, to whatever. And uh, so, yeah, to this day, I do not know how to ride a bike. Um, I have... I tried a little bit as I got older. As it turns out, when you try to learn at 26, it's just not going to happen. Uh, and that was a source of embarrassment for me for a very long time. And uh, so, and I'm throwing that out to you guys. So enjoy that. Enjoy knowing that. Make fun of me if you like. Lord knows other people did when I was younger. So, And speaking of that, look at that. That's a uh, flawless transition. So... Uh, so I, I continued, um, I went to a, another counselor, and then after a while, I guess uh, I was showing signs of, you know, good stuff, and uh, so I stopped going, and I got more involved in writing stories and drawing pictures and, and that sort of thing, and and my parents really encouraged that. Uh, I also, as I got older, uh, started putting on uh, a little weight. I would not go so far as to say that I was a fat kid, uh, but I was overweight, or God help me, the word husky has been thrown around, and if you have ever been described as that, uh, it makes you want to kill yourself. And I don't say, and obviously I don't say uh, jokes like that lightly, it is somehow worse than fat. Uh, it sounds so patronizing and so frustrating. And so, um, but anyway, so, uh, and I started to get made fun of by uh, other children and developed. Uh, anger towards uh, other people and uh, tremendous uh, inferiority complex. I was probably about eight or nine at this time. And, yeah. So it's, let's see. So I'm still in Ventura at this point. Uh, my, I, I should go back a little bit. So I was raised in the church. My parents were both Christian. Uh, and so I, you know, from my earliest, uh, you know, memory, we were always going to, to various churches. And... The church community was always very supportive of my family, and my my parents were both deeply involved. Uh, my dad went on several mission trips to, um, like, he went to Guatemala and Peru. Um, I don't remember what it was. It was probably to build something. I believe they were called work and witness trips. So the idea was probably to build some build a house for somebody or build a church or something like that. I've been on a couple of those. I'll tell you about those later. So anyway. 
So I, uh, and I always uh, believed in God, uh, of course, like so many others, probably as a function of my parents, and I was just taught to believe in God, and that was, and that was the end of that. Uh, and then as I got older, well, I guess, uh, let's, uh, let's keep going. So uh, my family in 92 was transferred again after three years in Ventura. We were transferred to Denver, Colorado. And uh, Denver, Colorado, which we lived there for six years, and that probably proved to be the more notable part of my childhood. People do not, when people meet me, they do not believe that I was raised in California. They do believe that I was raised in Colorado, uh, whatever that might mean. And so, um, so yeah, I moved there, transferred again, uh, very frustrated. Uh, that I keep having to uh, leave friends behind. But uh, so we start going to a church in, in Denver, and at this point I'm, I'm 10, my brother is 14, and, you know, I'm starting to become a little older. I'm, I'm starting to develop some of my talents, but one thing that I'm, th- that I'm very aware of is that I'm, you know, out of shape. I... I've been made fun of a little bit for that, and of course the bike thing. Uh, my, I have no desire to play any kind of sport. I do not care about sports. I, to this day, do not care about sports. I will sometimes watch baseball, uh, mostly because I'm very sentimental and my dad liked baseball. And uh, so my my dad was very into sports, and I just liked, you know, drawing and creative things, and I loved going to movies. So I very much felt sort of like the outcast. Not not an outcast, just an outsider. Uh, what other kids enjoyed, I did not. However, I did notice that I was developing of what I would venture to say is a charismatic personality. Um, I think other kids can probably relate to this. When you are, when you are, I was going to say physically deficient. That sounds, that's a little overblown for being overweight. Um, but when you, when you are unremarkable in some areas, you have to sort of make yourself remarkable in others. And so I developed a, uh, a certain, uh, I would venture to say an adult sense of humor and a rather dynamic personality. I I'm sorry if that if it sounds like I'm tooting my own horn. I'm not sure if I would say my personality is still dynamic, um, but it certainly was for a ten year old. Uh, adults really liked me and really thought I was something, to the point that when I was let's see how old are you in sixth grade, eleven or twelve? Um, I had a I had a my teacher wrote a paper about me. Um, because she uh, was getting her uh, master's or something, and she had to write a paper about someone she found fascinating. So uh, she picked me, and uh, she had me stay after class once and interviewed me for an hour, and uh, I read the paper, and it was uh, interesting. It was very strange to have a paper written about you. So, and I, always, and I didn't think that teacher particularly, particularly liked me either. But anyway, uh, I'm jumping around a lot. I'm sorry. Um, I should have made notes, but uh, I'm... I'm Staying surprisingly on track, actually. So, uh, so I'm ten, living in Denver, starting to become upset about things, about my standing. Uh, I developed this, I developed this f- fun personality. 
Um, but underneath, I am very aware that I'm not like other kids, uh, which is to say other kids are like popular, they're good looking, they're athletic or whatever. Um, even like kids at my church, like they're the ones that could sing and their talents were very public. Everybody was very aware of the kids on the, you know, on the basketball team or the kids that can sing, you know, I couldn't go up and draw a picture, um, for, in front of people. And so really the, it, it sounds awful, but you know, kids like approval. And especially when you are a kid who is singled out for ridicule, you want approval, from somebody, and as it happens, the talents that I had uh, did not war. You know, I, I was also getting into writing stories, and so I would show those to people. But no one's ever going to applaud for a story that you wrote after they're done reading it. And in fact, my stories were always incredibly violent. Uh, I wrote one about uh, called Sasquatch. And it was about Bigfoot going around killing a lot of people um, in the bloodiest way possible um yes i had read jurassic park and my favorite chapter in it at the time was the the dennis nedry's death because it involved disemboweling and all kinds of terrible things um so i was really starting to become embittered i was making friends uh again because what i didn't realize at the time but when i think back now i realize that other kids were attracted to me i don't mean attracted in in that sense but they just sort of they gravitated towards me, and it's interesting to to talk to some of my old friends now because I would always talk about, like, it's like, hey, in my little group of friends, like, who do you think was the leader of that group? Because it ne- I never thought it was me, but if you talk to my friends now, they'll be like, well, it was you, obviously. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm the, you know, I'm sort of the, I'm the fat comic relief. Yeah, I can't be the leader of this of this thing. Uh, but in retrospect, when I look back, I realize, oh yeah, I guess I kind of was the focal point of my group of friends. Um, again, that is not to, that's not to toot my own horn. It's really just looking back and realizing, oh, I guess that was the the case. Um, and the reason that I certain that I was not aware of, of that is because I, I had a huge inferiority complex at this point. I was deeply resentful, even of close friends. And... So we're getting into teenage years now, and from a spiritual standpoint, I uh, still believed in God and believed in Jesus. Uh, really, at the time, I couldn't really uh, I couldn't articulate why I believed in God, except that I remember from an early age looking at everything around me and thinking, like, it doesn't seem like it would come from that. This would all be a function of chance and then just proceeding through evolution, and that's it. And there's no meaning behind it. Like, I was even... When I was very young, I was always somebody who I just... I searched for meaning. Now, of course, I'm not of the opinion that a search for meaning means that there is meaning, but when I was younger, uh, that is how I how I approached things, and that's... And I thought there was a God, and I thought there was Jesus, again, very much probably as a function of my parents and the and the community in which I was raised, but uh, I was also very aware of all the th- of of how how I would venture I would say lesser I felt than other people, and I started to sort of put those qualities onto God. I felt like God was not very happy with me, and that I could be doing better things, and that He probably did not approve of me very much, and it did not help. Okay, there is. 
people say that however you view your father, that's probably how you're going to view God. I think that might be a little simplistic for other people, but for me, dead on. And my dad traveled a lot, and he was kind of a quiet guy, and I would not say emotionally distant, but uh, I always found him very intimidating, and um, yeah, and that's kind of how I viewed God as well, just kind of at arm's length, not very emotional, distant, and intimidating, and possibly disappointed. So... uh, so that did not help my view of myself. And as I got older, and then of course, oh, and then puberty hits. Oh my. That's just the worst thing for everybody. I mean, I assume that if you're listening to this, it was probably the worst time in your life as well. Um, because then you get all kinds of crazy emotions. And my, and then of course, guilt is what, is what, Like, that was the first real emotion to come to the forefront is guilt and resentment. Like, I saw... I saw everybody else around me, and they all looked like like they had it so together. You know, they didn't have the acne that I had. They had some, but not like me. I I wound up having to take this thing called Accutane, which is a... Which is an acne medicine so powerful that you have to take blood... uh, You have to have blood taken once a month to make sure it's not destroying your liver. So, like... I had bad acne, I had braces, I was overweight, like, I was just, I still had not discovered uh, any sort of public talent, I was just, but everyone else seemed to have it so figured out, um, and I became, and everyone seemed to have it better than I did, and I did not realize, you know, I didn't think at the time, it's like, you know, my dad worked for an oil company, I was, so we were pretty well off, uh, money-wise, I had two loving parents, um, you know, they weren't going to get divorced. Uh, it was, it was fine. You know, I, I had not experienced, I mean, I had experienced the loss of my uncle, but like I hadn't experienced any kind of major grief, like the loss of a parent or anything like that. And so things were pretty good for me, but like so many, like I possibly everybody in, uh, middle school and high school, I felt like everyone was doing better than I was. So, uh, so I was starting to get very frustrated with my friends who all seemed to be good looking and all the girls really liked them and the girls never looked at me and that kind of thing. And so I adopted a mindset that is very destructive, which was something like, well, their lives are so charmed and my life is so screwed up that you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to drag them back down back down to earth. You know, I'm going to I'm going to make their lives a little less good. And so there are some people uh who I somehow perceive I would get fixated on, I perceived as having a charmed life and I would try to make their life fairly miserable. Uh there's no question that I was a bully. And it's hard to think of now when you watch movies like Mean Creek or something like that to look at the bully character and think, yep, that was me. As as much as these other characters hate this character, as much as we the audience are meant to hate this character, that was me. It's it 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 strikes a chord with me now, like I'm very upset with myself now. Um and I certainly hated myself then because as it turns out, when you're making other people's lives miserable to try and make yourself feel good, it doesn't work. 
You're, you don't make yourself feel better. You might make yourself feel a little bit better, but you also hate what you're doing to people. You are not making them happy. You are making them unhappy. You're making them hate you, and all you want is them to love you. It's very, it's very complex, and you, you awesome, awesome, you often uh, can't stop. And so, okay, so we're getting into middle school now, and. Getting into age oh twelve thirteen, and I felt it was very strange because I really I would project. I still kind of had that personality thing going on, and I would project this attitude of like being not necessarily fun loving, but being like sarcastic and witty and sardonic and all that kind of thing. And. And underneath, of course, I was very aware of how angry I was at myself and how much I hated myself. And so I felt like there was like two, you know, two people. And it was, it got to be very frustrating because anybody who was my friend, I could say, well, they're not really my friend. They're friends with this persona that I put up. If they knew the real me, they would hate me just as I hate myself. And so... Uh, no one seemed to understand me, or at least I, I thought they didn't. Uh, and so, like so many others, you know who, <laughs> oh my, you know who won't judge me? You know, uh, you know who, uh, who can, I, who I can always turn to for understanding? Uh, naked people on the internet. Uh, I'm putting myself, I'm, I'm saying this present tense because of, uh, I'm putting you in the mindset of me at the time. Uh, and so, like so many other 12- and 13-year-old uh, males, I stumbled into the world of internet pornography, and it became a major problem. And, by the way, and it's it, 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 it sort of functioned as an escape from my problems, and I will throw this out to anybody who might struggle with this. Uh, if you are predisposed to guilt and shame, and you scamper off to porn to make you feel better... Uh, it's not going to. Uh, it will, in fact, only give you more ammunition to hate yourself with. So, yeah. Uh, and then we'll, I'll, I'll bring that up. Uh, yeah, I'll talk about it now, actually. Uh, porn has been uh, a, pro- a problem for me. Like, I think I have a very addictive personality. And it, even, even in the midst of hating myself, it was my go-to for years. It was just this thing that I knew I could count on, even though I knew it was wrong. And it's something that really, it's amazing. Much like actual movies, porn, like, I just sort of absorbed it. Uh, And it has really, like, screwed up some of my, uh, I don't know, it has screwed up some of my outlook on sex. And it has made me, like, very deeply ashamed of it. Even, Even though I enjoy it, I, you know, like with my wife and stuff like I enjoy it and I, it brings us closer, but there are still, I still sometimes have a little block where I'm, I feel like I like something, I'm like, I'm doing something terribly wrong. So I'll throw this out there. I don't think there's anybody really young listening, but uh, if you are toying with the idea of getting involved in porn, I would suggest don't Uh, for various reasons. Of course, objectifies women and there's the lustful, aspect there's the sin aspect but also just from a practical standpoint it it, there are people who say it doesn't make a difference it doesn't affect them and 
there are probably people out there that it doesn't affect uh, mentally and emotionally. Uh, but based on what I've on talking to friends and, and such and knowing myself, uh, it's always going to have some effect. And that effect is probably not going to be positive. Um, so. Uh, oh, and then also I will say uh, there's a link on the More Than One Lesson website. Uh, there is a website called Triple X Church. And so if you are somebody who uh, currently struggles with like uh, porn addiction, then uh, go to Triple X Church. You can download this software that it doesn't – I think they have software that, that actually like blocks like uh, questionable uh, websites. Uh, but I think that costs money. But – the free download, what it does is you set it up so that it, every week or two weeks, I think you can you can determine what the length of time is. Maybe it's a month. I don't know. Uh, it emails somebody of your choosing. Uh, so I would say tell somebody in advance that like, hey, from time to time, you're going to get an email about whether or not I've been going to any questionable websites. And that kind of accountability uh, can work wonders uh, on your self-control because... You know, knowing that some, that a, a friend of yours, you know, could be uh, privy to all of your uh, tastes and such uh, is uh, a pretty good deterrent. I, for some guys, it, it actually isn't, but uh, uh, or women. Uh, apparently, women can be addicted to it as well. Um, I yeah, I, I I was too flippant about that. If you're a woman who deals with it, um, I'm sorry for uh, making you feel uh, unusual or something. Anyway. So, sorry about that tangent, but this was something that was a big part of my life, and it only made me feel worse about myself, and I was really hating myself at this point, um, and I thought that God didn't like me. Oh, sure, he loves me, because he says he loves everybody, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't like me, and the only way that there would be any sort of forgiveness is uh, because, almost by default, because he's not going to make an exception just for me, Um and so, so it was very, it was very frustrating. I was, I did start to find theater and I found that I had, that I was pretty good at acting at this point. And, and that was pretty, that was pretty good. So I'm about 15, 16, I'm about 14, 15. I find theater in my church. I find it at my school and I find that I'm pretty good at it. And that's a lot of fun. But, uh, but from a spiritual standpoint, I'm still a wreck. Uh, I'm still hating myself. And then, as I've mentioned before, uh, my uh, youth pastor at my church, he had said something. You know, it's a, it's such a basic statement, and it's one that I'm sure I had heard some variation on several times uh, before in my life. But the way he phrased it, that particular moment... It just hit me at the right time because, like I mentioned, I was pretty sure that nobody really knew me, and that's what made me feel so alone. I had a lot of friends. Um, I was I was a bully to some of those friends, and I would venture to say not actually their friend, but I did have a lot of friends, but I didn't feel like they were actually my friend because they didn't know who I really was. And then uh, Randy Edwards, my... Uh, youth pastor, he had he he was giving some talk some Sunday morning, and he said, "God knows exactly who you are, even if nobody else does." 
and he loves you anyway. And that fascinated me, that idea of, because it spoke to exactly my issue. Now, the fact that he said it, I didn't think about it at the time. The fact that he said it means that he probably recognized that a lot of teenagers feel that way. They feel like no one really knows them. But he said, God knows who you are. And of course, for me, that meant he knows how much I hate myself. He knows the porn stuff that at that age, you're certainly not going to talk about to anybody. Um, He knows the resentment that I feel towards people that I claim to care about, you know, friends. And in spite of all that, he loves you anyway. He looks them square in the, you know, Jesus looks them square in the face, takes them as his own, accepts them as if he's the one who has been doing that and forgives you for them. So, because, and at this time, you know, like I said, I still believed in God. I didn't think he liked me. Uh, I believed in Jesus. I thought he forgave me simply because I was part of the crowd and he sort of had to do it. Uh, but a, a phrase like that made it very personal to me because it spoke to me where I was. And that is something that I would like to put out there to, to all of you that, you know, if you were, if, if you were raised, that's not going to speak to those that aren't, that aren't Christian. It's not like that's going to necessarily convert anybody because you, like I said, I already believed in God and Jesus but if you are somebody who is a Christian and it's just sort of a cultural thing as it, as it was with, with me and it's not an active belief, uh, I, I, would, I would put that out there for you that, it's, that God knows who you are. He knows what you've done. And he loves you anyway. And that love is not an effort for him. And that's something that I still have to remind myself of. So... Oh, we're at 38 minutes. Okay, this isn't going to be 45 minutes. Sorry, everybody. So, uh, when Randy said that, that's when I real. That's when it really started to become real for me, and I started to really try to understand uh, what forgiveness meant, specifically forgiveness of the self, um, and forgiveness of other people, because I could hold all kinds of grudges, but forgiveness of the self as well, because. I would. I was my harshest uh, critic. I hold. I held the the longest grudges against myself, and so. So that's that's sort of when I. I guess that I. I could say that's when I became like when I actually became a Christian, like an active, praying, Bible reading, although not very often, still not very often, unfortunately, uh, Christian. And so, uh, so then we. So then, in the midst of all this, at this point, I'm doing theater. It's going great. I became a Christian, and I'm still having a difficult time, like, uh, making things work. But I'm starting to back off on the bullying thing uh, and starting to try to patch up those friendships. And uh, and then we move again. This time, not because we were transferred, but because my dad, uh, having grown very, very sick of working for the oil industry, which... I'm sure everyone listening to this knows is not the most uh, ethical. I won't say they're doing anything uh, necessarily immoral, but a little unethical. And uh, they asked my dad to do something that was not that he didn't think was right. And so he's like, I don't think I want to be here anymore. So uh, but it it cost a lot to live in Denver at the time. 
And so we moved to Nixa, Missouri, the home of uh, fictional character Jason Bourne. And Nixa, actually, it would sound, it seems counterintuitive. You would think that it's a step down uh, to go from Denver to Nixa. But Nixa is where I started to flourish. Uh, I jumped into that theater department, started getting like major roles. Uh, I got involved in the TV video department, uh, and there wasn't, there wasn't even any of that at my school in, uh, Denver. So, and so I was, I was having a lot of fun. I was really starting to discover movies and discover how much I love them. Um, I had started a little bit in 97 when I was 15, 16. I saw L.A. Confidential and Wag the Dog and The Apostle and just some really great movies. Uh, but now I moved to Missouri. I started going, frequenting this video store and just starting my own education. And I just sort of stumbled on a lot of movies. I didn't know what Barton Fink was about. And I didn't, know who, I didn't really even know who the Coen brothers were. I think I had seen Fargo at that point, but I, I had not yet started to think about specific filmmakers. So, like, I, saw, I watched Barton Fink and, you know, Miller's Crossing and Glengarry Glen Ross and Brazil and, you know, all kinds, of, all kinds of movies. And it was really exhilarating. A lot of great things were happening. Um, so uh, then it was uh, decided that I would go, I was going to go to Columbia College, Chicago. And I was going to, uh, you know, move away, move out of the house. Uh, I was at this point uh, maturing as a Christian and and maturing in my under in, in my understanding of of God. Of course, every reason that I have for believing in God and believing in Jesus, uh, it's been addressed by people who don't believe uh, in God, and they say, "Well, there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for this or that or whatever." But actually, for me, uh, those explanations are, are not uh, adequate. I feel like they don't actually explain the things that I think about and wonder about, uh, as strange as that sounds. Um, it has been, this sort of thing has been discussed in more detail uh, elsewhere. Uh, a lot of my reasons uh, are summed up very well and very Britishly in uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Uh, I, I feel like he does a very good job of, of uh, philosophically looking at who we are as people and understanding that there's a lot of instincts in us that don't seem to make sense as far as natural animal evolution uh, and that what can that mean and that sort of thing. I'm not going to sum it up here. It's a really great book. I really enjoy it. Um, but yeah. And so, uh, I, I have no knowledge. Uh, I have very little knowledge of, of science. And so when it comes to, you know, the cosmological arguments in favor of God, it's like, yeah, all right. Okay, sure. Uh, I don't know what that means. Uh, so for me, it's always been moral and philosophical arguments and, that started to come about uh, in high school, and so, it, so I uh, at this point my brother still lived in Denver, and so it was really just me and my parents. And my dad and I started growing closer together. My parents were always very encouraging of me; they always were very supportive of me. They knew that I was uh, having trouble when I was younger, and they always tried to uh, be supportive of me. And 
when I started doing theater, they always made it to all of my shows. When I started getting into movies, my dad, uh, because that's the thing is I always thought of my dad as a sports guy. What I didn't know is that he was a movie guy as well. And so when I started getting into more adult movies, I think my dad really uh, opened up and that became a bonding thing for us. And so we went and saw, uh, you know, The Insider together and, and all of, and he recommended he's the one that recommended Chinatown to me and a lot of other movies that uh, that I really to this day love. And so things were going pretty well. I went to my first year of college was spent at Southwest uh, Southwest Missouri State University uh, just to get some general eds out of the way. And then uh, September of one, I moved to uh, Chicago. At this point, I had met my Battleship Pretension co-host, David Bax. I had auditioned to be in the Allstate, the, the Missouri Allstate show of Bus Stop by William Inge, and I got in, and so I was an actor in that, and David was a sound, was the sound guy. He was living in St. Louis. I was living in Springfield, uh, Missouri, or next time, I'm sorry. And so we would meet each other uh, every, like, once a month in 99 uh, to be involved in these rehearsals. And he and I really hit it off. So, yeah, my so we went to Columbia, uh, Columbia College, Chicago, and it was great. Uh, I really loved it. It was stressful a little bit, but to just be suddenly immersed in film, in this thing that you love, because I, you know... My whole life I had felt, as I mentioned, like an outsider. Like, the things I liked were things that were not widely appreciated. And in high school, the movies that I liked, yeah, a lot of my fellow high schoolers didn't really care about them. Not to put anything on them, everybody has their own thing, it's fine. But, not a lot of high schoolers were like, hey, Maltese Falcon. And so, but now I was in the midst of people who loved movies, and it was amazing. And... And I tell you, uh, as I've, uh, this is what I say about college. The first thing you learn, if you really are there to learn, the first thing you learn is how much you don't know. Because in high school, oh, I thought I knew so much, and I did. I for a high schooler, and then you realize, oh, you're just a big fish in a small pond when it comes to movie knowledge and film appreciation. Then you go to college and you realize, oh my gosh, there are huge holes in my film knowledge. And I feel like that, more than any specific thing, is what I got out of my college experience, is that as much as I will ever know about film, there's entire chunks of film that I know nothing about and might never know anything about. And so, uh, so 2001, 2002, living with David, he and I are arguing a lot. He was, uh, he was an atheist, I was a Christian, he was a liberal, I was conservative, it was this... Uh, philosophical odd couple kind of thing going on but uh then uh i and i had met i had gotten involved with a christian organization at school and met this girl that i was sort of getting interested in her name was jennifer alders and i was thinking of uh, asking her out but I was going to be leading like a small group Bible study and she was going to be in it. And so I thought, oh, I, sh- I probably shouldn't do that because, you know, it might be a conflict of interest or something like that. And I remember I had told my uh, my dad about that and he was like, well, that's very, you know, it's good that you've got that, that, that you're thinking that far ahead and that you're trying to be objective. But, you know, small groups come and go. 
who knows where this uh, where this po- where this possible relationship with this girl could go? Um, my dad, my mom and dad both, but my dad especially. I think he knew that when I was younger, my confidence was nothing, uh, non-existent, and uh, when it came to like the idea of ever going out with uh, a girl, um, he knew that I, I did not see myself as somebody that women would ever be interested in, and so when when I did sh- when I did show that like, hey, I might ask this girl out. Sure, she'll probably reject me, but hey, why not? Uh, he lo- he jumped on the opportunity to actually be encouraging of something, and so uh, so he he said you should go ahead and and go out with this girl, and I was like yeah, all right, whatever, Dad, you don't get it. Uh, and then and that was at my brother's wedding, uh, which was early April of two thousand two, and then. About a week and a half later, my dad uh, died of a heart attack, and yeah, it's interesting. As bad as you, you know, it's, like I said, life was going pretty well for me at the time, but when I think back, and I think like, oh man, I like, at the time, like when I was younger, I thought I had like, oh, such a hard life, oh, I'm an overweight kid, and you know, people don't understand me, and I really hate myself. Um, and you think your life is really hard, and then you get hit with actual tragedy, and it is mind-numbing. It is soul-numbing, and it is just... I should not have started this, uh, I should not have started this episode at 5 in the morning. It is now 6.17, and so... <laughs> and now I'm getting to my dad's death. Uh, I don't want to go, want to go into a great deal of, of detail about it, um, simply because I have in other episodes. But um, but man, grief uh, will test you in ways that you never thought possible. Like, oh, I oh yes, no, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. Really? Well, uh, have have your leg taken out from under you. Like this. Um, and see if you believe in him now. See if you believe that he's good. Uh, see if you believe about that God has a good and perfect will. See if you ever trust God again. Um, yeah, it, uh, it changes your life. Of course, I mean, that's, that goes without saying that you know, oh, oh, really, Tyler? The death of a parent when you're only 20 and your parent's 50? That's going to change your life? Really? Thanks. Um, but it really does. I mean, it is it is probably one of the, I'm going to say, top three defining moment, moments of my life. Um, and it's coming up on, oh, geez, yeah. It's coming up on the nine-year anniversary of that. And after nine years, of course, I've, I've I'm, you know, I've moved on, but... Uh, the only the only reason that I move on is because my father's death is just a fact now. I can say it without actually talking about it. I can say it without thinking about it. It's like saying the sky is blue. It's you don't you're not emotionally invested in it because it's just a fact of your life. Uh, but if I take the time to think about him, that's when I start to really miss him. And when I re- you know, I thought I was I thought when I was. <laughs> When I was 20 and, and, uh, and he died, I was thinking like, well, I had 20 years with him, you know? 
So I guess I got, I got more than most. I was trying to, you know, be I'd keep a stiff, a stiff upper lip and all that. Um, but when I think back now, I realize like, oh my gosh, I was only 20. Um, not to, you know, I don't mean to like sound all self-pitying, but like, you know, he never even, he never even met my wife. Uh, and he never got to see me move out to Los Angeles and make it on my own and stuff like that. And, you know, there are moments, there are things I'm dealing with right now in my life that if it would be nice if he was around because I don't have a lot of like older Christian men that I can talk to about things. And I've sort of had to be on my own in that sense. And, uh, yeah, it's very frustrating. And the effect that it had on my faith was not a small one because I, to this day, still have a difficult time trusting God with the safety of my loved ones because I real, you know, it's, (laughs) there are times when I'm very good about it and times when I am not. There are times when I've described God's will as a steamroller that's just going to keep on going and it's going to roll over anything and anybody in its path. Um, during times when I'm particularly depressed, which as it happens is right now in my life, uh, that is how I think of it. And I, and I fall back on that thought of God as, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's good. And his will is perfect, blah, blah, blah. But he doesn't care about me. Um, and that day was when that started and it's, uh, very difficult. And yeah. So I don't want to go too much into that. I already have, but I don't want to go too much further into it. But uh, one thing that did come out of it is that suddenly I was just like, yeah, I guess we don't have a lot of time on this earth. I think I'm going to ask this girl out. And uh, that, and so that relationship started, and uh, there's no question that I was looking to fill a void in my life. Uh, our first date was a month after my dad died. Yeah. I was probably I probably put too much on her uh in those early days but uh but I fell in love with her and it was amazing and it is amazing she's my wife now and you know it, she it's astounding when I think back on how our relationship started but uh anyway so father passed away and it caused a lot of difficult things for me. Uh, and it went back to, it goes back to that idea of isolation and feeling like you're alone because when you are grieving, you feel like you are the only one, uh, who is feeling this terrible feeling. Uh, and you just want to get away from this feeling. You want to just run as fast as you can, as far as you can, like you can somehow outrun it, but you can't. And here's the, perverse thing you also don't actually want to because you feel like to stop grieving is to be disloyal to the memory of this person and so I was really quite miserable and I felt like God was not really on my side um, because he let my dad die so clearly he doesn't care that much about my you know it's not like I'm I'm not asking for like a mansion with a swimming pool I'm asking for my dad to be alive Um, and I just felt like I felt like 
God did not understand, and the Bible cannot speak to me. Because, yeah, 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 we've all read Job, we get it. But, uh, you know, it's the Bible, by and large, doesn't understand, like, real human concerns. Uh, and so now we'll actually get to the first, uh, the first scripture reading of the, of the day. And I have a lot of them here. It, there was none, and now there's a lot. So, one thing that I am fascinated by with, with the Bible is, I was wrong earlier. Uh, earlier, a moment ago, when I said, like, oh, it doesn't, it can't speak to me, it doesn't know what I'm going through. Uh, it does, oddly enough. And it goes back to what I was saying a long time ago, that, like, knowing that someone else is going through, or has gone through, what you're going through, can make a huge difference, and can bring a surprising amount of comfort. Um, and to think that that thing, that person is in the Bible. And, of course, this is this is very, this is like a very simplistic thought on my part, but part of me is like, okay, these verses I'm about to read are very, they're just full of despair, and part of me is like, man, if the Bible was just straight up fake or totally fiction, why would they ever leave this stuff in? Because it does not speak well of it. You know, it's... If you're trying to win people over to this idea, then you want to make it sound as appealing as possible. But uh, So I'm going to read uh, Psalm 6. I'm going to read the whole psalm. I'm, I'm sorry, everybody, but uh, I was looking for a part that I could highlight, but I kind of want to keep the whole thing uh, intact. So Psalm 6. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my uh, couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all all you who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. Now, there's a lot in that in that one about uh, enemies and such. But, you know, when I read that, I, it just astounds me. I mean, verse 6, I am worn out from my groaning. You know, and then... Verse 2, I am faint, my bones are in agony, my soul is in deep anguish. You know, it's, there's real understanding of what people go through. And the fact that it addresses these things um, and does not necessarily condemn them uh, leads me to believe that, you know, the the Bible and, and God... He's okay with the fact that we feel like this sometimes. It's not merely that he understands it, but that it's an okay thing. I mean, provided, of course, we don't let it overwhelm us or or, or overcome us. Um, it's not 
inherently sinful or anything that we feel these senses of despair. I mean, it's right there. It's there in the in the chapter and in the verse. As dumb as as this is, as dumb as what I'm about to say is, I actually thought it. Maybe not consciously, but it was just like depression is kind of a new thing, right? You know, strictly speaking, like people weren't really depressed back then. You know, they had goats and stuff. Like they're just worried about that, right? Uh, and then you read something like this, and you realize that no, depression and desperation and just feeling melancholy is a word I use a lot. Uh, that is nothing new, and God understands it. Um, I'm going to read this section of uh, Psalm 42. Uh, It's uh, Psalm 42, verses 1 through 3. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. uh, When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? And then there's a lot more. Uh, as that goes on. Um, and in fact, is I, am I gonna, yeah. And then I'm actually going to jump to the end of, of, uh, of Psalm 42. Uh, I'm going to go verses nine through 11. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by my, by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will, pr- I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Um, yeah. It underst- God understands. It's What I was feeling is nothing new. And there, like I said, there is a certain degree of comfort in knowing that God is not distant from these emotions um, and that the writers of the Bible were not distant from these emotions. Um, Let me look at these other verses here. Um, So, uh, so as I mentioned, I, I still, okay, so I have since, um, so I, I graduated in 2004, and uh, then we got married in 2005, and it became very clear to me, at the time I wanted to be a screenwriter, and it became very clear to me uh, that I could not do that in Chicago. And so in, 2000, in early 2007, Jen and I moved to Los Angeles so that I could pursue a career in screenwriting, and... I, you know, I, int- I interned at a couple of places, and uh, I wrote some industrial short films, and I, you know, I did some script reading and stuff like that, and did wrote some coverage and did some script consulting. It sounds more impressive when you put it like that. Um, and I was a PA at a at this place. Uh, I, I, I guess I'm listing these credits uh, because. Uh, in an iTunes comment recently, somebody said that, uh, oh, Tyler makes it sound like he's really qualified and that he's a Hollywood veteran. Uh, I'm not, and I know I'm not. Um, my interaction with Hollywood is pretty scant 
and is pro- I'm probably more involved in Hollywood through Battleship Pretension than I ever was with any professional endeavor. But uh, and speaking of that, so uh, I had started listening to podcasts when I lived in Chicago, and I felt like I could I could do a film podcast. I would really enjoy one, but there was only one person I would want to do it with, which was David, who at this time who at that time lived in California as I was living in Chicago. And so when I moved out, I said, Hey, this is something I absolutely want to do. And so we started doing a film podcast and I loved it. It was great. Just he and I had a nice chemistry. I was getting to meet people um, and not just guests for the show, which was super exciting, but I was getting to meet people from all around the world. Uh, Not, literally meet them but you know through email and stuff and we got all kinds of uh encouragement from people and it really was just astounding it was so satisfying um and so like while i was struggling uh with you know these internships and struggling to find work or whatever uh the podcast was just still going and i just found it so immensely satisfying and i really felt like God was pushing me towards film criticism. And as, I've, as I'm sure I've said elsewhere, I was very reluctant to do that uh, or to declare myself as a critic for reasons mostly having to do with personal pride because there is a stigma to critics. You can read, right now, you can go and read uh, a letter written to Roger Ebert in which someone said, oh, he's, in which this person was very angry about a review that he wrote and, and said, like, clearly you're a failed screenwriter. And that, that is the stigma of the film critic, that they are art, they wanted to be artists, but it was too hard. And knowing full well that I came out to Los Angeles to be a screenwriter and that I would give that up in order to be a critic, it's like, well, maybe I am a failed artist. But it's like, well, not, not, my, my wife had to tell me this. Not really if you're consciously making the choice to do something that is way more satisfying, which is film criticism. Uh, And so, and I was just like, oh, but nobody likes film critics. When I worked at movie theaters, when I worked at video stores, people always said, whatever a film critic says, I just do the opposite. I don't know why I went into a southern accent then. It just kind of seemed right. Um, And so... I was like, I don't want to be that person. I'm somebody, as we've talked about, I'm somebody who loves and needs the approval of others. I want people to like me. I want people to love me. And nobody loves film critics. You know, everyone, everyone's quick to bring up that uh, Teddy Roosevelt quote about, ah, the critic doesn't matter. It's like, ah, thanks, buddy. Uh, that's, that's all I've got. Um and so I was just so reluctant for months and months to ever say, no, 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 I'm, I want to be a writer. I'm going to be a writer. It's going to happen. And then finally, I just decided, you know what? I love podcasting. I love being a critic. I love talking movies. I love recommending a movie and somebody watches it and says how much they love it. And I love pointing to movies, not pointing to me, but pointing to movies and saying, the art is what's important. Not what I say about it, but how it makes you feel and what it makes you think about. That's what's important. And so finally, I said, okay, I'm a critic. That's what I'm going to be now. And once I did that, it 
the definition of what a critic is opened up to me in a way it was it was fascinating it was really amazing that like i realized that i had really limited what the definition was by my own by my own like personal prejudices and my own personal pride pride and prejudice one could say ugh that was a terrible joke i may take that out i'm going to leave it in um and so but once i once i realized what it could be Oh, I was so I was so excited, you know. A critic can do any number of things. They can and especially when you live in Los Angeles, I know all kinds of artists and I can I can encourage them. I can, you know, pray with them. I can read scripts and say what I think. I can, you know, they can bounce ideas off me. I've helped friends, you know, uh edit their not edit their movies but they say like hey what do you think of this little decision i say well you could probably do this or that and just like i could there's a lot of things that you can be not merely somebody who just watches a movie and says what they think there's that certainly but someone who can champion smaller films and smaller artists and say hey everybody you may not know about this person you need to know about them they're doing amazing things and it has been so satisfying and it it strikes me as interesting. It's, I don't know, I'm not sure if I'd call this irony, but I, it seems strangely appropriate that, you know, I'm somebody who, as I've mentioned throughout my life, like, I, I liked getting attention. I liked, I desperately needed approval. Um, and I, I liked to be center stage. I liked to be in the spotlight. And it's it just seemed so interesting to me that... God was calling me to a profession in which, yes, admittedly, like you know, I'm doing a podcast now, and it's me talking and only me. Um, so I, there is, some, you know, a little bit of 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 me being center stage, but the nature of the uh, the critical profession profession strong. I don't make any money at this, but um, is that you're always pointing at someone else. You're always pointing at something else. You're saying. Yes, yes, if you like my reviews, that's fine. If you like my podcast, that's fine. But what you really need to know about is this person over here. Uh, you need to, you know, it's it's one of the reasons why I like having certain people on the show. Um, you know, I want people to find out about Will's documentary. Um, I want people to find out about uh, uh, Barlow's uh, film, Lo and Behold. I want people to find out about you know, what Jason Eakin is up to and what Josh Long is up to and and all these other people. Um, And I also just want people to know about great movies. You know, if they find out about it because of me and they credit me with it, then all right, neat. I I get a a nice little ego boost, but it's not about me. And I think that's something that critics sometimes forget, and I know that I often forget it as well, is it turns into, you know, it's... It's like, yeah, whatever movies you like are, are, you know, that's that's important, but not as important as the fact that you you heard about them from me. Uh, so it, it just it's such an interesting thing to me that I got called to something that requires that I so often have to go against my natural instinct to seek the approval of others and to be in the spotlight. Because, like I said, people often uh, go against credit, uh, critics, um, consciously and the nature of what I'm supposed to do has to be pointed at somebody else. 
And these are some of the things that I learned uh, in in working on um, Battleship Pretension. And then a friend of mine, a friend of the show, Nathan Potter, had suggested to me, he was like, you know what you should do? You should uh, do a, a Christian movie podcast. And I, the idea of that had sort of occurred to me at this point. And then he said it sort of out of the blue. And I was like, okay, well, that sounds... You know, when you're a Christian, you look for... I, I personally don't believe in coincidences. Uh, I believe that, uh, you know, sometimes God speaks to you through other people. Sometimes he speaks to you through events. And the fact that I was sort of thinking about this a little bit, but not in any kind of serious way... Uh, and then someone out of the blue says that this is something you should do. Uh, that seemed like, oh, I guess this is something I should look into. So uh, so I started more than one lesson, and my faith was going to be a big part of it. And it wasn't. it didn't take very long, as anybody who listened to my uh, Hellboy episode uh, can attest. It did not take very long for people to really hate the show and hate me and because of course uh in the in the world of film criticism which is the art world and christianity is not unfortunately really embraced in the world of art mostly uh, i would say that's our that is our fault as christians because we have tried to distance ourselves so much from it that uh, our judgment uh of the arts community is can only ever be mirrored by them and so uh, i feel like it's more our fault than theirs but anyway uh, so people listened to episodes of mine and decided they didn't like what I had to say and called me all not, all kinds of things, and I hated that. It really it made me angry, uh, and started to really depress me. And I'm still dealing with that depression now. Uh, but there is a verse that that I have sort of kept in mind. It is sort of the watchword of the show, at least for me, and it's Jeremiah one verse seventeen verses seventeen through nineteen. Get yourself, uh, this is God talking to uh, Jeremiah. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. Today, today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests and priests and the people of the land. They will fight against you but will not overcome you. For I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Um, I try to keep that in mind. That I know I have non-Christian listeners. I know that stuff I say will sometimes offend them. And it has certainly offended some people. And they've come come at me and have been very upset about it. And I have... I keep talking, but I, like, I, keep, uh, I keep on doing the show... But I really have sort of absorbed a lot of the negative criticism. And it has really, like I said, it caused a, a, a depression in me and an irritability and an anger. And so I'm actually seeing a counselor right now uh, to deal with that because, uh, you know, I do not handle insults well because of, you know, this uh, <clears throat> this history of being made fun of and getting resentful and, and bitter about that sort of thing. And you actually, for me, I, this is something that I, that I really deal with is this idea of, and I don't know, maybe you've dealt with it as well, is this idea of being a fraud. Um, 
I don't know, when you get people constantly questioning you, whether it be um, your, your faith and just saying you're stupid or questioning your ability to talk about film, it really causes a, like a self-doubt. And you start to wonder, like, what, what made me think that I had the knowledge uh, to put my opinion out there, either in written form or in podcast form? There's all kinds of things I don't know anything about. So what makes me think this is okay? I'm a fraud. I don't know anything about movies. Um, and I just hope people don't figure it out. And this guy over here who's being really critical, he he seems to get it. He knows that I'm such a big, I'm such a huge fraud. Um, and it's, that that's that that's a fairly recent development, that fraud thing. Um because, you know, I, I said I, I college really humbled me and I've tried to continue my film education since then. Um but I do I do sometimes adopt kind of this uh haughty, uh egotistical attitude about movies and then I you know, read a negative email or something and I realize like, oh, I've done nothing to deserve uh to to earn this uh this attitude. Like I I'm just scum. I know nothing about movies and yet I make it seem like I know everything about movies. Who am I to say all these things? So uh so yeah, it is really I don't know, the it is really affected me in a bad way. And it, and of course a lot of that is me. But nonetheless, I mean, there are people who read negative emails and just rolls off their back. It astounds me that that can happen, uh, that people are capable of of doing that. Um, But uh, but I am not. So I still there's still a lot of issues that I deal with in my faith. I still deal with issues about um, God's sovereignty and God being in control of everything, because if, if he's in control of everything, then that means that he could have kept my dad from dying. Um, you know, and when I, when I worry about, you know, as I record this, my wife is out of town. And so like, I always worry about her plane going down or something like that. Um, and my friends say, well, just pray about it. You know, just, uh, just pray that God will keep her safe. And I do that, but there's always part of me that says, yeah, if God's going to kill her, he's going to kill her, which I know is not at all the right attitude to have, but like, it's, you know, it's difficult. It's a, it's something I struggle with a lot. Um, I don't want anybody to think that my Christianity is easy or that I just breeze on through it. Uh, and in fact, I don't think, I don't think there's a lot of Christians that just breeze on through it. Um, Almost every day is a, is its own little crisis of faith. I mean, we all wrestle with doubt, um, and yeah, and that's what I'm dealing with right now, and and I'm you know I'm getting through it, but it's it is not easy uh, to deal with that sort of thing and to deal with because I still also deal with major guilt issues and shame issues and just really not liking who I am and you know it's yeah it's pretty rough and there is no guarantee 
when you're a Christian that your life is going to be great and that, you know, wounds from your past are not going to play a part in your present or your future. Um, you know, but I do try to, I do try to not necessarily keep a positive attitude. I don't consider myself much of an optimist, but I do have a hope and that hope is God. That hope is his forgiveness for me. And that, you know, that I'm, I'm going to screw up daily, but you know, as I'll, uh, well, I'll bring this up again. Uh, I, I don't remember when I quoted this verse, but I'm going to quote it again. I know that I did bring it up in another episode, but I don't remember which one. So Romans 8, verses 35 through 39, uh, and I'm going to skip verse 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, And then there's, uh, let's see, 1 John 2, I'm sorry, 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Um, and then Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12, and I know that uh, I've said this before as well. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Um, No matter how depressed I get, and I can get pretty depressed, you know. And I, I think of you know sometimes I look at the mirror in the mirror and just like, ugh, you, really, um, and I just. you know, it's not necessarily an easy time for me right now, but I have a hope, and it's really my only hope. If I put it, if I put too much hope in my wife and she were to die, then I have nothing. If I were to put all my hope in my friends, and they were to reje- and they were to reject me, I would have nothing. If I were to put all my hope in this show or in my career, or my passion. You know, I could get in an accident tomorrow and not be able to speak, and the show's over. I could put all my hope in movies. I could get in an accident and lose my sight. And the movies are primarily a visual medium, so they're gone. That's gone. No, I don't. I don't mean to uh, make it seem like these things that I'm listing are bad. They're not at all. Uh, it's good to love your wife. It's good to have friends. It's good to have, you know, a passion of some kind. Movies for me and podcasting and all that sort of thing. Uh, 
all of these things are good, but they can be lost very easily. Literally, I could put my hope in pretty much anything and it could be gone and that thing could be gone and my and with it my hope. My faith in God I I doubt it frequently. I have a difficult time uh, accepting all of it because it is a difficult thing to accept. But it doesn't go away. If I lose my sight, it doesn't go away. If I lose my wife, it doesn't go away. If I lose my job, it doesn't go away. You know, I mean, like, if I were to lose my wife or my sight or something like that, certainly my faith would be affected and it would probably be hurt for a short time. Um, but my faith would not die as a result of those things. Um, and that's my hope. Um, that there is a God, that he knows who I am, he knows everything about me, and he loves me anyway. And nothing can separate me from his love. And that everything that I've done wrong, it's, you know, it's as far as the east is from the west from me. Um, and that, uh, you know, I should try not to sin and do things wrong and have a crappy, prideful, self-righteous attitude. But if I do, it's covered. Um... Yeah. I know that there are people that are listening to this that don't believe this and might even think me foolhardy for believing it. Uh, Just this evening, I saw a YouTube post in which it was like, how can any intelligent person still believe in God? Uh, Various reasons. You know, probably different for everybody. I have... I have my reasons, which I admittedly didn't go very deep into. Maybe I should have. I'm I'm sorry that I didn't. But, uh, yeah. I also am very aware of the fact that I need God. I need that. And, yeah, the it has occurred to me, it's like, well, maybe the only, re- maybe the only reason I believe him is because I need him. I, I need it so badly. Possibly. But, you know, it is something I believe. I believe it's the truth, with a capital T. And it's where I find my hope. All right. I realized that the tone at the end started to get a little almost dark, considering I'm talking about hope. Um... But uh, so I'll try to end on a on a good note in pertaining to that, which is, uh, and I'm sorry, everybody, this is going to be some sort of something like an altar call, uh, which not everyone's going to understand that term, by the way. Um, but uh, if that sounds appealing to you at all, email me, Tyler at more than one lesson dot com, and we'll talk about it. 
Uh, I'm not opposed to calling people on the phone. Um, yeah. So thanks everybody for listening. I'd love to hear your feedback. Positive feedback, please. Yeah, if you know what negative feedback too, that's fine. Just email it to me. Don't put it on on iTunes or anything. Just just email it to me, and we'll have a conversation. Um. But yeah, uh, thanks everybody for listening, and I'll get you next time. Bye.